This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Giancarlo Fiorella. He's doing a PhD and he also runs a website called In Venezuela Blog where he gives people up-to-date information on the situation in Venezuela in English every single day. Giancarlo is going to be telling us about the small-scale rebellion that started last year in Venezuela and has been crushed this year by the regime there. He's also going to be talking about the deteriorating situation in the country. To keep us going, to support Popular Front, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. This episode is sponsored by thedefensepost.com. 2017, perhaps not the start, you know, the start of the riots, the start of the protests when they were really heating up and started hitting the news uh, in the West, uh, or at least in the Western media. Um, why did those riots start, you know, and, you know, I guess, where did they come from? Yeah, so the unrest that we saw last year, starting in April, started um, as a result of two decisions from the Supreme Court. Uh, that came in late March, and uh, that's part of another sort of backstory to the Venezuelan crisis. Uh, but what the Supreme Court ruled in uh, March was that they were taking over all of the powers of the National Assembly, which is controlled by the opposition. So the Supreme Court came in in March and said, um, the National Assembly is in contempt of the law, and we are going to take over all of their powers, so we are going to be the legislative branch of government. And by the way, we are the ones who decide when the National Assembly is not in contempt anymore. So because the Supreme Court is controlled uh, by the regime, the opposition said, well, this is it. Like, we're done politically. Um, if the National Assembly loses power, then this is a dictatorship, etc. And so they called for uh, protests to uh, react to that ruling. What happened, though, was that um, the protests were really fueled not only by that decision, which was eventually, if I remember correctly, walked back, uh, but it was fueled by the crisis in general. So the shortage of food and medicine and basic necessities, uh, the hyperinflation uh, that was beginning in that time, um, basically every grievance that people had with the Maduro regime sort of got sucked up into this um, constitutional um uh, sort of government crisis and it fueled the protests until August of last year. Okay, so maybe let's back up even more then. Why, you know, why was there such a shortage of food? Why has all this stuff been happening under Maduro? The shortages of food and medicine and basic necessities are, are really stem from a couple of, of issues. Uh, one of them is that really dating back to the Chavez years, Venezuela has lost um, what ability it had to feed itself. So things like, um, um, uh, you know, the ability to produce uh, food, to, uh, um, you know, in farms or, or um, uh, et cetera. Like in internal production of food has really um, uh, collapsed. Why though? Uh, so going back to Chavez again, uh, one of the things that Chavez did was he expropriated land sort of on a mass scale as well as uh, private industry. So you had companies that were producing food. You had farms that were producing food. And Chavez, um, because of, of, the, of sort of the nature of the Bolivarian Revolution, um, the fact that, uh, you know, private industry has been vilified really 
going on for for 20 years now in Venezuela, would expropriate um, uh, private businesses, private farmland that that he considered to be for whatever reason, you know, not helping or not not helping the cause of the Bolivarian Revolution. What was expropriated was mismanaged by the government. Um, you know, sort of entire companies would be kind of looted dry by whoever, whichever kind of lackey was put in charge of them. And because there was so little accountability, uh, you know, you had just droves and droves and droves of, of, of land not producing food. And you had uh, the same thing happening to private companies. So whereas you had a company that was importing food at some point uh, or processing food that was produced in Venezuela, it was put under government control. Uh, and over the years, they just sort of ceased to operate. That's one factor. The other one is that um, Venezuela uh, imports a lot of its um, um, food and medicine, um, in fact, most of it. And um, as the country's financial uh, accounts have taken a dive, uh, this is particularly the case since Maduro, it's, been, it's lost the ability to do that. Uh, it's lost the ability to buy enough food and enough medicine and uh, enough basic necessities from abroad in order to to feed and to um, um, you know keep hospitals stocked, and so that re- that began you know th- there were f- the food scarcity. I I remember being noticeable even back in two thousand and eight. Um, you know I was much younger back then, but I remember going to um, uh, supermarkets in Venezuela and noticing that well you know the shelves were empty and people were kind of complaining about the lack of food. But that really took off uh, once Maduro came into power. So you, you remember that as a kid, right? Because, you know, you grew up in Venezuela, right? Yeah. So, I, I, I mean, I left in 1997, but I'd gone back, uh, you know, there was a period of time when I was going back every every year, every two years. Um, so I do remember I do, I do remember scarcity being a thing even back then. Um, but, but it's funny, as much as people, as much as a lot of people didn't like Chavez, you know, when he was alive and, and, you know, he got all kinds of flack from, from people, in, um, uh, you know, from what we call the opposition in Venezuela. A lot of people, I think, look back on his on his tenure now kind of fondly because they said, you know, as, as bad as, as, as things might have been, they were much better than they are today, especially in terms of, of, of that, of the scarcity of food and medicine, um, which, I, as I said, really sort of took off once Maduro uh, came into power. There will be a lot of people listen to this you know, kind of communists or, you know, what I call tankies, the, you know, the, the hard left that are so hard left, they're basically touching the far right, you know what I mean? Those kind of people, you know, I've seen them saying, ironically, it's mostly white people who've never even been to Venezuela and most of them are rich kids, but they're saying, you know, no, it's not true. It wasn't Chavez's fault. It's not Maduro's fault about the food shortage. It's all because of the West and sanctions, you know, and there have been sanctions. There's got to be some truth to that or, or what do you think? Yeah, so, I mean, I would say a couple, yeah, I, I do run into a lot of those uh, uh, people um, online, um, and I, I'll say a couple of things to that. Um, the the first is that yeah, there are sanctions in place. Um, the the sanctions um, originally started to target regime officials. So I'm talking about the sanctions that have been put in place by the European Union and, and Canada and the United States. And so when you say sanctions, you're talking about sanctions against named individuals. And you know, there's a, there's less than a hundred of them, I think, uh, in the U.S. list, which is the most expensive one, as as far as I can uh, remember. And so uh, those sanctions would say, okay, uh, Maduro cannot come into the United States, uh, or if he has any assets in the country, any money in banks, any real estate, we're going to seize that, 
and also um, uh, we're banning anybody, any U.S. entity from conducting business with them. So there's a bunch of regime officials who are under those sanctions. There are also sanctions that came in, I believe, in August of last year from the United States banning the purchase and any transactions with certain government bonds. So those are more kind of hard-hitting uh, uh, financial sanctions. So those target the regime's ability to uh, finance itself. But those came in in August of last year. And by August of last year, the crisis was well underway. Right. Um, and so, you know, just to blame the sanctions for the way that the country is today is to completely ignore the fact that it was in a really, really, really bad shape well before the sanctions came in. Um, the, the one that's always sort of hanging over the country's head are, are oil sanctions. So there's always rumors that the U.S. in particular is going to, uh, you know, stop buying oil from Venezuela or something. That Those haven't been put into place. Those would be completely, uh, you know, devastating um, uh, to the country. And so I think that's one of the reasons why they haven't been implemented. Uh, and the other thing I would say is that... Uh, I don't know why people continue to defend the government. I mean, I guess people don't like to be wrong. They don't like to feel like they're wrong about something. But, um, you know, there are all kinds of, of, of people in Venezuela who supported Chavez. There are high-ranking members of his government who have stepped aside and said, you know what, this Maduro guy is not what we were about. Um, you know, whatever Chavez's vision was for Venezuela, the Bolivarian Revolution, that is not what's happening in the country right now. You know, I'm, think, I'm thinking of people like Rafael Ramirez, who was one of Chavez's closest allies. He was the head of the oil company, uh, PDVSA, for like 10 years. The former attorney general, uh, Luis Ortega Diaz, she's also, um, you know, she's in exile right now because she started speaking out against the government. Uh, and so there, you know... It, the su support for Maduro has is sort of, uh, you know, really low in Venezuela in general, and that includes people who once supported Chavez and were members of his of his government. I think what it comes down to is you get kind of, you know, like Max Blumenthal and Ben Norton. You know, they're, they're complete lunatics. Nobody really seriously takes them serious. You know, I mean, Max Blumenthal is a millionaire because of his dad. And I think for him, politics is just an adventure playground. You know, they kind of pick a side and then they start calling people this, that and the other. They don't actually really know what's going on. So I think what it is for them, it's just they're just playing into part of the spectacle. They're not actually knowing what it's like. And like you said, if people are actually stepping down who were Chavez people, even they're saying, no, this is not right. And then you got this guy in D.C. Or, or New York or Brooklyn, whatever, is saying, well, actually, no, you know, it's some kind of fascist takeover from the U.S. It's just it's obviously nonsense. But forget them. Um, let's let's go into the uh, talk about the riots, you know, like how how did they really start? Because I remember keeping a close eye on it and it just kind of exploded. You know, it was a few barricades here and there, rock throwing. And then all of a sudden it really, you know, it really ramped up. Yeah, so that's what I was sort of trying to get at earlier. What, what, so what happened was, okay, so there was these two rulings from the Supreme Court. The opposition said, we can't stand for this. We need everybody to go out and protest against these uh, rulings. And I think the date that they picked was April 1st, I, I think was, was, was the date that they said, okay, let's all go out on the streets and we're going to protest against this. So people took that, um, so they sort of took that to the extreme and said, okay, yes, we're going to come out on April 1st and we're not going to leave until the government uh, changes, until Maduro is out, right? And so they did seem to sort of explode onto the media uh, scene quite suddenly because it, 
I mean, that, that is how it happened. Uh, as I said, the rulings came out in late March. I think it was within a week that the opposition said uh, of the rulings coming out that they said, let's let's start the protest. Uh, but but what really sustained them throughout, you know, April, May, June, July was the more general discontent against the government. So you had daily massive protests, some of the largest protests uh, that the country had ever seen uh, taking place on a daily basis, in, in particularly in Caracas. Um, uh, again, fueled by uh, this desire to see the government uh, change, to see Maduro leave. Right. And who were doing the protests? You know, because there was some, again, uh, we have to mention it because the maniacs do kind of take over quite a lot of space when it comes to the discussion on this. But there were some people saying these aren't, you know, popular protests. These are kind of US backed fascists, you know, ultra nationalists. I certainly kept a good eye on what was going on there and definitely did not see that. It seemed to me to be a lot of young men going, fuck this, we're not having it anymore. You know what I mean? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, certainly the people on the front lines of the protests, we call them um, uh, escuderos in in, in Venezuela. Uh, It's a term that I think came out during the protest movement, were young people, um, you know, sort of college kids who were saying things like, I don't have a future in this country and I want to have a future here. I don't want to have to leave. Uh, so they're the guys that you would see uh, with shields, uh, homemade shields, um, fighting uh, National Guard soldiers and, and National Bulgarian police for the most part at protests. Um, you know, the thing that I always say is that uh, the the what's what makes the crisis the crisis, and I'm talking about the scarcity of food and medicine and basic necessities, that hits the poorest of the poor the hardest, right? Uh, it's the most marginalized sectors of society who feel that the most, because if you are rich, um, you have the ability to, to you know, find food better than somebody who isn't rich, right? Um, and so, it's, you know, to say that the protests were, um, you know, like a minority movement or that they were sort of manned entirely by like CIA bots or, or whatever it is that people say, is it completely ignores... Uh, the reality on the ground. You had, you know, tens of thousands of people protesting on a daily basis all throughout the country. Right. And these um, these protests eventually turn into clashes. Um, maybe you can tell us about that. How did that kind of evolve into, you know, it was a small scale conflict at one point in the streets, right? Yeah. So the, the, the Maduro regime's response to protests is typically uh, sort of like open, brutal repression. Uh, what happens even um, during uh, protests that are peaceful, and, and I would say that the majority of them, at least uh, last year, uh, were, is that the National Guard will show up or the National Bolivarian Police and uh, they'll start shooting tear gas at people, they'll start hosing them down with um, the high-pressure water cannon trucks, um, and uh, they'll shoot them, uh, the protesters, with rubber pellets. So, um, that began immediately. Anytime you have a big protest, that's sort of what happens right away. Um, you would then have protesters, um, some of them fighting back. The the you, typically the younger um, um, ones in the groups uh, would throw rocks or Molotov cocktails at the police. Um, and then you also had um, what's sort of like the the looming uh, danger in all protests in Venezuela: uh, the what uh, the the colectivos armados, which in English means armed groups or, or armed collectives, uh, and these are um, groups of, of civilians who um, 
Amnesty International calls them pro-government civilian armed groups. Like paramilitaries, right? Like Maduro paramilitaries. Yeah, so they're sort of, yeah, they're sort of similar to what you see in, what you, we saw in Nicaragua earlier this year. They're, they're pro-government, I, mean, I, I mean, I think that's a pretty good description of them, pro-government civilian armed groups. And, and they'll show up at protests uh, and they'll do things that typically the police would get in trouble for doing, just like kind of, you know, shooting into crowds and all that. Um, and that's when you saw some of the the more sort of like the uglier conflicts uh, happening. So if you ever saw a video of like a firefight happening in Venezuela or just like people shooting into crowds, uh, those were those most likely involved colectivos armados. And these people started, you know, I've seen videos, we've all seen them. They just started firing into crowds. They started shooting unarmed protesters as well. In fact, there's even footage of them shooting buckshot at a reporter from Sky News, I think it was, you know, they were really starting to kind of dig in. Yeah, yeah, the National Guard, yes, they're, yeah, I've, I've seen, um, yeah, they've, I mean, they've killed people with, with what's supposed to be less lethal ammunition, right? So things like like uh, uh, rubber pellets, which, you know, evidently will kill you if you shoot them uh, sort of at point-blank ranges, which is what often happens. Um, the, the National Guard will... Usually, I mean, whoever does that, if it's caught on tape, could get in trouble with the police uh, just because it looks really bad for the regime. I think I think uh, this was certainly the case last year. I'm not entirely sure that it's the case now. The regime was very much concerned, I think, with maintaining a certain image, uh, especially for the international media, I think, in order to maintain support from the sorts of people that you were talking about earlier. And so if a National Guard soldier were to shoot someone at point blank and kill them and that was captured on video... Um, you know, chances were that, that that soldier might get in a little bit of trouble. Uh, I know that some soldiers were arrested uh, following, um, you know, allegations that they had that they were the ones responsible for killing protesters. Uh, the thing about colectivos is that they um, that they're not sort of bound to that um, institutional pressure to to keep up the face that you know Venezuela is a democracy and that we prosecute people who abuse human rights, right? And so that's why they play, a, a, I think, a really important role in the, in the government's um, repression repertoire. Uh, they're a tool that can come out and, and do a lot of the sort of the, the, the dirty work that the National Guard does sometimes, but maybe is, is a little bit afraid to, to actually do. And how closely do you think they were working with the police and the National Guard? You know, the, the Colectivos certainly at some points looked like they were just kind of, you know, I don't know, local neighborhood guys that were for Maduro. And then other times they look like these guys are working hand in hand with the police. Yeah, the reason for that is that is that that is what they are. Um, I mean, like with so many things in the media, uh, the term colectivo sort of makes you think that there is one thing that is a colectivo armado. But in fact, there's a whole spectrum of, of organizations and interests and formations that are called colectivos armados. So you do have... Um, groups of concerned neighbors who, you know, uh, maybe aren't super into Maduro, but they 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 appreciate the gains that Chavez made uh, for them, and they want to protect the you know that idea of the Bolivarian Revolution, and they don't want an opposition protest in their neighborhood, so they'll show up at a protest as counter protesters, uh, and somebody will take a picture of them, and and they are called the Colectivo Armado. Uh, you also have on the other side of the spectrum people who are working completely hand-in-hand -hand with the government. Uh, some of them might be National Guard soldiers or even national uh, police officers who, who are not wearing uniforms. So they'll show up 
um, in civilian clothing, and they'll be collaborating closely with um, uh, uniformed security officers to to repress a protest. And there's pictures and videos of, of like National Guard soldiers in uniforms with you know people in civilian clothing, sort of riding uh, a shotgun uh, at protests, right? So you do see at the full spectrum. You see neighborhood groups that are um, unhappy with a protest happening in their neighborhood, and you see. Um, uh, people who are um, really on the government payroll um, uh, doing these activities at protests. Right. And what is the situation with weapons, with, you know, guns in Venezuela? To me, at least, it looked like it was only really the pro-government people that ended up getting their hands on, you know, assault rifles and stuff like that. There were a few videos where you would see the youth you know, throwing their rocks and then a guy would poke around the corner and, you know, fire a shotgun or I think there was even like an AK at one point, but I didn't see a lot of that. And I, honestly, in, in my ignorance was surprised. I thought that, that that would be able to rise quite quickly in Venezuela. Yeah, one of, one of the, you know, the, the situation is so kind of dire and hopeless that it's it's hard to sometimes to see, okay, like what's, a, what's one positive thing that's happened. Uh, I think one positive thing is that we haven't seen like full out, civil conflict with, you know, like roving gangs of opposition and, and colectivo groups, you know, with machine guns and like bazookas shooting at each other, right? I mean, that would be uh, 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 horrendous. Um, I mean, the heavy weaponry for sure is on is on the side of, of the government, right? As it is anywhere. Um, uh, not only, you know, the state security forces count on the full arsenal of the government, of the, of the, the national uh, Bolivarian Armed Forces, um, and then, and then some of that will filter down to colectivo uh, groups. So you do see pictures, you do see videos of colectivo armado uh, uh, groups with um, uh, you know assault rifles. There's a video on YouTube uh, where you can't see the weapon, but it sounds like a machine gun, like an FN mag, uh, shooting at a protest um, uh, during a protest uh, last year. Um, uh, and and for the most part. Um, as you again, as you see in 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 footage from protests, as you see from media reports, um, opposition uh, protesters um, don't just simply don't have access to that weaponry, or or if they do, they're not using it uh, in any kind of significant way. So there's just not that many weapons out on the streets, basically. I I would say that there are weapons out on the street, uh, but they're not they're not. I mean, people just aren't using them in 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 protests. Uh, there's a, a couple of reasons for this. I mean, I think. You know, generally, I think people don't want to get into gunfights. Yeah, not a bad rule. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of them. Uh, and the other thing is, this sort of sort of gets at the at, at one of the talking points of the regime and 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 its supporters when when they're trying to paint the opposition as like like this fascist sort of force that's out to like murder people on the streets who who say that they uh, support the government. Uh, the the opposition protests are overwhelmingly peaceful. Um, you you can look up footage from the protests in 2017, 2014. You see masses of tens and tens of thousands of people marching peacefully, trying to exercise uh, what right what rights they thought that they had, and and the exercise of democratic rights is is by definition a, a sort of a nonviolent thing, right? So uh, because the the protest movement last year was based on like let's assert our rights as citizens of a, of a country that we think is democratic that should be democratic. Let's do that peacefully, uh, without weapons, um, uh, because that's you know that's that's a, that's sort of the guiding principle I think of that of that struggle. That, and that's not to say that um, 
that some protests, uh, you know, some opposition protests didn't turn violent eventually. But as they do uh, anywhere else in the world, they, they tend to turn violent at precisely the moment that the, that the police, that the National Guard, that the colectivos show up and make them violent. I remember seeing a lot of um, videos where there were, you know, anti-government groups and the, the kind of youth were trying to form kind of, I don't want to say militias, but, you know, they were giving themselves names and they were holding up, you know, they were reading statements saying, you know, this is who we are. It was kind of like the beginning of the Syrian civil war, just minus the assault rifles. But they were all carrying those little kind of mortar, you know, those little mortars they make, those kind of welded tubes and what do they fire out rocks and stuff. Yeah, or like fireworks. Uh, there's a video on YouTube of like, a, a, I think, uh, I don't know what to call it. It was like a cannon, like a homemade yeah. cannon that shot fireworks. And it was like a really impressive sort of display of firework power, I guess. Uh, yeah, there was some of that, definitely. Um, and, you know, you, you also saw that on a bigger scale with people like Oscar Perez. Yeah, I was going to say we, sh we should get into Oscar Perez. Like, who is Oscar Perez? Let's do that now. Let's do, yeah, so Oscar Perez uh, was a, a police officer who uh, tried to kickstart a, a general kind of insurrection against the government. He... Uh, became a household name in June of last year when he hijacked a helicopter and he sort of flew, he started to fly it around Caracas. Um, and he was, the media reports say that he was, you know, shooting, um, it's not clear if it was grenades or flashbangs or some kind of explosive device at um, the Supreme Court building, but sort of in a clumsy way, like it didn't seem to be, a really well kind of thought out plan. He was just flying this helicopter around. I think there was somebody else in the helicopter with him. He had a banner um, that was hanging out the helicopter that said Libertad and then the number 350. So the word Libertad means freedom or, or liberty. And 350 refers to an article of the Venezuelan constitution that says that uh, Venezuelans have a right to rebel against tyrannical government. So he was trying to tell people, you know, like that's in the constitution for a reason. This is a tyrannical government. We need you to come out on the streets and, and kick these guys out. Um, he was able to evade the authorities that day. He landed the helicopter in a, in a wooded area north of Caracas, and he kind of went into hiding for a few months. He resurfaced in December of last year when he um, raided a, a National Guard's uh, barrack uh, near Caracas. Uh, there's a video of it. He recorded it uh, and put it on YouTube. Um, he stole a bunch of weapons, um, and he tied up all the soldiers that he found inside and he gave him a lecture on like civic duty and how to, how to be better citizens and how to, you know, like he was sort of shaming them into, 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 you know, he was saying like, how, you know, how dare you put on a uniform every day? You're supposed to be defending the people. You're working for the tyrants, that sort of stuff. And he, he had a group at this point, right? It wasn't just him by this point. He had several other, well, like former police officers, um, I think there was some military guys, no? Yeah, that's right. So he ended up with a group called the uh, Movimiento Equilibrio Nacional, the National Equil Equilibrium Movement. Really rolls off the tongue, that. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it, you know, to this day, I'm not sure that we know how big this group was. It was obviously uh, quite small. I'm not sure that it's still operating today. Um, he, he had, uh, he, he, he published a couple of videos even while he was in hiding throughout the second half of last year, uh, doing what you mentioned earlier, sort of like reading out statements, uh, with a background, you know, with a Venezuelan flag and saying things like, you know, we have to rebel. And he had weapons as well, right? They all had, obviously, like you said, they raided the armed, uh, the, 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 um, the barracks, 
But in these videos, the difference I think with him was it wasn't kids on the street. This was like, you know, a special police officer with yeah. other guys. They had uh, body armor on, masks, uh, assault rifles. It looked like this could be the start of something quite big. Yeah, they were armed for sure. And they know how to use their, their weapons also because as you said, they, they had the training. Uh, and, you know, Paris was actually a, a member of a special force within the police um, organization in which he served. Um, and so when... Um, on, on January 15th of this year, when the authorities found him in a safe house near Caracas, um, you know, there was a firefight. Um, he posted a series of videos on, on Instagram um, the day that he was found out saying, you know, uh, they've got us. They've surrounded us. We're trying to surrender. Uh, we, you know, we don't want to fight these guys. Uh, we're completely surrounded. We want to we want to get out of this house. Um, but as the day progressed, he started posting videos in the middle of a firefight. Um, so Paris claims that he, um, that his group, so he was in the house with um, six other people, um, f five of whom uh, were members of his group. And it looks like the sixth might not have been. Um, it was a, a woman and her family said afterwards that she wasn't a member of, of the um, Movimiento Equilibrio Nacional. She was the partner of one of the members, and she just happens to have been in the house when, when this raid took place. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, they were armed. They were um, obviously capable of using their weapons. I think we should mention as well, like for any listeners, like you need to watch this footage because it's insane. You and me, we made this video, right? We made a video. I'll put a link at the end of this. Um, we made a video kind of detailing it all. Um, with uh, Ali Ame Leroy um, at Bellingcat and BBC. And the footage is insane. Like, this guy was a very charismatic guy, I believe. He was like, he was an actual actor at one point. He was like an action hero actor, and then he became like a real action hero. And he's filming from inside this building, gunfire coming from all directions. There's even footage with Perez bleeding out of his head, shouting like, we surrender, we surrender, like, stop shooting, there are civilians in here. And then, you know, as, as you know, you, you found with the investigation, right? You believe they were executed. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I, as you mentioned, this is the, the piece that we wrote for uh, Bellingcat with, uh, with Alium uh, Leroy. Uh, it, it, the evidence does seem to suggest that they were executed. And, and there's a couple of, of points uh, to, to bring up in that uh, sort of respect. Um, you know, throughout the videos, especially in the early ones, Perez was, uh, he was very calm. He was very kind of unequivocal in stating, you know, we're negotiating, we're trying to surrender. There's a couple of videos of him negotiating with the uh, police outside. He's very cordial with them. The police are very cordial with him. Um, and, you know, despite the fact that they were armed and that, you know, they were police officers who were trained uh, to use their weapons, um, his MO up to that point had not been to, to be violent, right? Uh, even the, the, the raid on the barracks was sort of a weird moment because, as I mentioned earlier, he, you know, nobody was hurt. He just tied people up and he told them to be better soldiers and to actually, you know, do their jobs and, and that they should be ashamed of themselves. And then they laughed, right? So um, it, it seems like uh, from what we know through, through the, uh, from the evidence that was posted online that day, there was an honest effort for him by him to surrender, we also have intercepted uh, radio communications that were posted online by Univision um, demonstrating that the authorities understood that there was a surrender happening, that, that Perez was surrendering, that his intention was to surrender, um, even, even at the point when the officers were inside the house. So this is something that you can hear in the Univision 
uh, leaked radio uh, communications that officers were in the house. They understood that the surrender was happening. And then suddenly, you know, Paris is dead uh, and his six companions were dead. All of them, um, with the exception of one, were shot in the head. Um, their autopsies, uh, um, sort of their death certificates show this. One of them was shot, I think, in the neck, and that's what killed them. Um, but uh, even after their deaths, the government was really um, kind of secretive about the whole thing. Their burials were highly regulated affairs. People weren't allowed to um, uh, witness them for the most part. Uh, the house in which the uh, raid took place was raised. Uh, so now it's not there anymore. It was just completely demolished by um, by the government. And so uh, all of the evidence that we, we looked through um, and considering the government's response after the fact suggests that they were executed. The gunshot wounds to the head, you know, the fact they all wanted to surrender. And then I'm not saying they hid evidence, but if you want to hide evidence, destroy the buildings a pretty good way of going about it. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, that's you how you would do it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is from a state that is, you know, brutally oppressing its people anyway. Um, and the collectivos were involved in this as well, right? I know there's footage of, you know, a few collectivos were killed um, by Perez and his men firing back and forth, right? And there's like... This, uh, some pictures where they're kind of, you know, having a full state um, funeral and that. Like, what happened there? Yeah, so that's one of the one of the other interesting facets about this um, is that, so there were, as far as I can remember, two security officers who were killed in the firefight. When the government announced their deaths, they said that one of the officers who was killed uh, was from the National Bolivarian Police and that his name was Andrin Domingo Ugarte. So this is how it was announced to the public. Andrin was killed. He was a police officer. He was killed by Oscar Perez. We found out later that Andrin had another name, Hiker Vasquez, and that Hiker Vasquez was the head of a colectivo in Caracas. So Hiker Vasquez and Andrine are the same person. Hiker Vasquez was both the member of a colectivo and a national Bolivarian police officer. And as you said, his funeral was attended by both members of a colectivo armado and uh, uniform members of the national Bolivarian police. So that's a really, I think, um, good example of, of, of how kind of nebulous these groups are, right? You have, uh, you know, was he there in his capacity as a colectivo member? Was he there in his capacity as a police officer? Is there a difference between the two in this case? Yeah. Uh, you know, is it an important difference, right? Um, so it, it's a really, it's a really kind of murky um, relationship that some colectivos have with, with the government. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't really matter if he was there as um, National Guard or a Collectivo if he's a member of both, you know what I mean? It's like the corruption has already happened there. It's a mad one. Um, and what about this bomb, you know? There was, um, was it you that did an article on this or was it Nick Waters? Bombs of Caracas. Uh, so he, yeah, he wrote, Nick did all that. Yeah, Nick. Yeah, so, so there was a bomb. We'll get onto the drone thing later, but I want to talk about, you know, there was some footage, um, I think the tail end of the clashes in Caracas and basically a bomb goes off in the street, right? Some National Guard are driving by. I don't think it killed anyone, but it's it's not a huge bomb, but it's a bomb nonetheless. Yeah, you did. we did see, um, I think I think there were two distinct ones that I remember, two separate events where, yeah, I mean, they were basically, I guess, what you would call an IED, right? Um, yeah. it, was a, it was an explosive device that was placed on the side of our road. Both, both times it happened in Caracas. At least the footage that I remember seeing was the two events happened in Caracas. It was towards the end of the, um, of the, um, 
uh, protest wave, as you mentioned. And uh, they both targeted, um, um, I'm not sure if they were National Guard or National Bolivarian Police, but they were state security forces. As you say, they were sort of driving by whoever was controlling the device, waited for them, for the officers to be nearby, and they detonated it. I don't know if we ever found out what kind of explosive it was. I'm sure somebody like Nick uh, or somebody from Bellingcat would be able to, you know, deconstruct the video and, and, and tell us from the smoke and the on the sound or whatever, what, what kind of explosive it was. Uh, but as you say, I don't think anybody was killed. I'm not sure that nobody was injured, but nobody was killed in those explosions. And who do you think that was? I mean, there's clearly at least one person, you know, took it to the extreme and actually built an IED for it. I mean, depending on what kind of uh, explosive it was, uh, it could have been anybody. It could have been, you know, one of those kids that you say, um, you know, posted those videos on Instagram or YouTube saying, you know, me and my four buddies here are part of X whatever group and we're rebelling against the government, right? Uh, you know, if it was fireworks, it could have been anybody that has access to fireworks, right? Um, the, the protest did really kind of seem to be spiraling out of control into uncharted territory with, uh, with Paris, um, um, you know, with his uh, intervention into, into, the, into the national scene and with these IEDs. Um, but for whatever reason, we didn't see too many of them. Uh, as I said, I think there was just the two that I can remember in Caracas. And with Perez, I mean, what kind of um, what kind of support did he have? Because I know he didn't really have. He wasn't trying to. He wasn't really like we're leading the revolution. He was trying to basically create the spark that started that wave. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's fair to say. What's one of the things that's really interesting about him is that I remember following the developments on the day that he hijacked the helicopter. And I think maybe the most uh, common reaction that I saw from people was, was that he, this wasn't a real thing. Like he was a government plant or, or, you know, he wasn't really serious about this. And, and there was a, a lot of skepticism, even from opposition groups. And I would say even from, from some of the more kind of uh, 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 gun ho ones, right? Uh, saying, you know, this let, let's wait, let's wait to see what happens. We're not going to, you know, let's not go out on the streets as he's asking us to do right now because we don't know who this guy is. Um, as, as the days passed and we found out more about him, it almost seemed as if um, that, that feeling um, became more widespread because we found out, as you mentioned, that he, he had been in a movie and his Instagram account was full of um, sort of, I don't want to say bizarre, but a little bit bizarre videos of him like sh doing trick shots with his pistol. And there was one of him like jumping out of a helicopter with a dog. He's a real narcissist, basically. Yeah, he was sort of a, a really um, kind of odd character. Um, and he had a, the social media uh, presence to, to prove it. And so I think at first people were really hesitant and they really asked themselves, is this, you know, who is this guy really? Uh, you know, what is all this about? As, as time went on, um, I think he, he, he won over many more uh, uh, followers. I think, I think the, National Guard, the National Guard barracks raid kind of cemented the idea in a lot of people's heads, if you were skeptical that, that he was the real deal, um, because, um, you know, that, that, was, uh, that, was be, that was beyond him posting a video on, on, on YouTube telling people to go out on the street, right? Like, it was, it was clear by that point that he was willing to, to act. Yeah, I remember even you and me like talking and I was like, this guy has got to be, he's, he's the government, right? They're just sent in a decoy and even we were like, maybe, you know what I mean, for a while. 
It was tough. Yeah, it was tough at first. Um, I, I, I remember even some uh, high profile political opposition leaders saying like, no, we're not gonna, you know, we have nothing to do with this. We don't know what this is about. This isn't us. Please don't, you know. Um, but I, I think, I think, yeah, as I said, as time went on, I think it became clear to people that that he was honest in his in his um, in his desire to, as you say, spark a, a rebellion. Maybe not lead it himself, but but to inspire people to take uh, direct action and 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 fight for um, uh, a different government. Right, and I think it's safe to say now that the we could call it maybe an uprising of sorts, but the the uprising or rebellion or whatever has been crushed now. Um, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I, the, one of the things that the Maduro regime has been able to do really well is is that is crush dissent uh, through a variety of means. The the massive protests are um, crushed or have been crushed or were crushed by by you know sort of the brutal repression that we saw. Um, uh, that might be tantamount to crimes against humanity. Actually, um, there's uh, the International Criminal Court is investigating. Uh, the regime's conduct during the protest last year, uh, precisely looking for that for that answer. What were, were crimes against humanity committed in the repression of protests? And what kind of crimes were committed? You know, what what were they doing to protesters? So beyond you know shooting unarmed protesters uh, without any regard for you know their well being, um, there are widespread allegations. Uh, you know, really substantiated allegations of, of torture uh, happening uh, to people who were detained uh, over, uh, you know, we were talking about thousands of arbitrary de- detentions, people getting picked up just for being near a protest for absolutely no reason, being in prison for that. Um, and so those are those are the two, I think, that the, that the ICC and international organizations are looking at, torture, um, uh, the indiscriminate use of force, against unarmed protesters and arbitrary detentions. Um, beyond that, um, the, the regime has also been really good at neutralizing the, the political opposition. One of, one of the things that I hear sometimes from people is they'll say things like, well, you know, of course, Maduro has everyone supporting Venezuela because there's no opposition. The opposition is so ineffective. Well, you know, Maduro doesn't have a lot of support in Venezuela, but to the extent that people don't support the opposition, a large part of that, I would say, is because the regime has been so successful at, at completely destroying it. So, you know, they've imprisoned um, uh, opposition leaders. There are opposition leaders uh, in prison today on on completely made up charges. Um, others have been driven out of the country uh, into exile um, because they were uh, persecuted. You know, they had they were threatened. They had their families threatened. They were threatened with arrest. It's like the Turkey playbook, basically. Like you know, like what they did with HDP, put the leader in prison, and then anybody that's kind of talking out or you know doesn't fall in line again, prison, prison, prison. It's just that, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's a way to to in effect, I think, create a, an opposition that that is sort of like the, the sanctioned opposition, right? So anybody who isn't in jail, I think, uh, is not in jail because the government f- doesn't feel like they need to put you in jail yet. Uh, but if you speak out, if you start sort of getting followers, if you if you seem like you might eventually become a bit of a, of a, of a thorn at their side, you get uh, the weight of the state thrown out you, right? Uh, and the other, I mean, uh, other things that have happened are uh, the, the regime has also, because it controls the Supreme Court and, and the National Electoral Council, these are the people who run the elections, they've closed off um, all of the avenues really that a political opposition could use to to replace them. 
Um, so this is why we're seeing, uh, you know, electoral fraud happening. Uh, any action that the National Assembly does, again, the National Assembly is controlled by the opposition. Any bill that they pass, any law that they pass is immediately ruled unconstitutional by the, by the Supreme Court. Um, so, so yeah, the rebellion, you know, if you want to call it that, has been crushed, I think, uh, for now, um, both through the the kind of brutal repression that you see on the streets and also through through more institutional and legal um, uh, means. Yeah, well, with that in mind, uh, you know, I, even I just said, well, it looks like he's crushed the kind of the rebellion that was happening. However, there was the drone attack recently. So there's definitely some people you know, maybe only a few who still have plans to do something to Maduro. So for any listeners that don't know, um, basically a IED mounted on a drone exploded near Maduro recently at a kind of military parade type thing. Um, maybe you can tell us about that because there's a lot of speculation about who set the drone off, you know, what actually happened. Um, what do you think? Yeah, so the the thing about... Um those sort of events is that we really don't have anything to go by except for what people record and put on Twitter and what the government says. So the government's version of events in this case, as is often the case, is that, you know, the drone was uh, sort of put in the air by this kind of nebulous coalition of enemies, foreign and domestic, like Colombia, the United States, uh, you know, expats, uh, political opposition leaders, etc. Right? Uh, I don't know how much of that we can go by. Uh, they have arrested um, the last time I checked uh, over a dozen people. Some of them were active uh, members of the military, um, and so it is. I think evident that there are, I would say, individual cells of dissenters that are still trying to kickstart something. Uh, but the the, the problem for them is that for the most part they're they're just sad they're individual cells right um, uh, there's been uh, something like 40 um, army officers arrested at this uh, since the start of the year on charges that they were um, involved in a, in a plot to overthrow Maduro right uh, so we do get hints occasionally that something might be happening beneath the surface but the hints that we get are are, are that it's not sort of widespread um, that, that, you know, we're not talking about entire sort of like regiments taking up arms against the government. These are for the most part, they appear to be relatively small groups with very limited means, uh, very limited support, um, who are, are not able to really act, um, in a concerted effort. Yeah. And also I think when, you know, if they say, oh, well, there was this many military officers plotting against Maduro because of the arbitrary arrests and, you know, the kind of totalitarian vibes of the regime right now, it could have been anything, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, like in Turkey, you step out of line, terrorism, you know, 100 years dungeon, it's, it doesn't really mean much. But, you know, like a bomb did go off, you know, a bomb went off, right? And it was, it seemed to be some way quite well planned um you know the fact it went off quite near him i read an article um that said there were some guys military guys in colombia had been planning it i don't know if you saw that yeah i think the government connected it to a military training camp in colombia so they said that the like the the drone operators practiced flying the drone i think is what the government claimed in a in in a camp in Colombia, and they gave it a name. I can't remember it right now. Um, but um, you know, as you say, it's it. I don't know if that's true, and I don't know if we can be sure that it's true because that's the government's go-to line for anything that happens, right? Like the the, the Maduro regime blames Colombia f for the scarcity in Venezuela. 
Why? Why Colombia? Because of the relationship with America? Yeah, uh, yes, that's part of it. Um, and the other thing is that as 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 Venezuela's neighbor, uh, and in particular since uh, the election that they had in Colombia uh, recently, um, Venezuela sort of needs a, a scapegoat, right? Like Maduro's, Maduro can't say that he's responsible for what's happening in the country, right? So he looks around and he, and he blames virtually everybody that he that is around him, and that includes uh, Colombia. There is, uh, you know, one phenomenon that that does impact um, uh, Venezuela, and in particular the border regions, is the the selling of Venezuelan gasoline in Colombia. Because gas in Venezuela is the cheapest on the planet. It costs like a fraction, you know, fractions of a cent to fill up your car. Uh, what people do uh, is that they'll, you know, they'll get a whole sort of truck full of gas and they'll take it from Venezuela to Colombia and they'll sell it in Colombia um, at, a, at, you know, at, at the Colombian price and you make, you know, all kinds of profit, right? Uh, so, you know, Maduro says, well, Colombia is doing this, right? Uh, well, no, Colombia just happens to, to be there. But what's doing this is this sort of gas subsidy that has been in place forever. Um, and the people who are smuggling the gas, you know, they are, they tend to be either connected to the army or, you know, the army itself, right? The Venezuelan army. Um, so, so it's not it's not necessarily Colombia that's orchestrating this. It's, it's corruption in the regime and mismanagement that that is fueling this this entire industry. Yeah, and before we wrap this up, maybe you can give us an idea of what life is like right now in Venezuela. Because I know you know you have relatives and what have you, and you know a lot about the kind of current situation for people there. Um, you know, what are they living under? Yeah, well, things are really rough. Um, it, the inflation rate is, is expected to hit a, a million percent by the end of the year. A million percent? A million, yeah. One million, so that's the one with the six zeros. By the end of the year, it'll be the highest on the planet. So what that means is that, you know, you go to a supermarket today and, you, you know, you might come back later the same day or, or, or the next day and, 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 and the, you know, the same item that you looked at yesterday is now more expensive, uh, if you can find it. Uh, power outages are are... A, a fact of life. Um, so reliable access to electricity is becoming, um, you know, not, it, it's not something that you can count on anymore. Uh, that's especially true anywhere except Caracas, although Caracas is getting hit by it as well. Um, medicine is scarce. I, I can't tell you how many messages I see on Twitter every single day from people literally going on Twitter and saying, hey, I have diabetes, I need insulin. Uh, if you've got any, hit me up, uh, you know, posting their phone numbers. Um, um, diseases that were once eradicated are coming back. Uh, there are people who, um, you know, and I'm talking about thousands of people who don't have access to um, chemotherapy drugs. So if you've got cancer, uh, you know, good luck. Um, uh, there was a, a, a report released, um, it was presented before the United Nations Human Rights Council earlier this month that said that uh, Venezuelans lost an average of 11 kilograms um, last year. Uh, due to the f uh, food shortages, so it's um, it's 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 a dire it's a dire situation. I um, as you say, I do have family there, and and one of my daily concerns is is them. Mm. And what do you think is going to happen in the future? You know, this can't be sustained for much longer, surely. You know, it's I've I've said that I've been saying that, and people have been saying that since you know fifteen years ago. Um, it's it's. Um, it, if I've learned anything from covering Venezuela from, from, you know, it, it's that things are bad today and, and 
they can then they can get worse um, because that's what's been happening for so long. Um, I think, as I said earlier, I think the the regime has has done a good job at. I'm, and I'm not saying that you know they should have done this. I'm saying that they they've succeeded at uh, cementing their hold on power. So I I think that uh, they've they've successfully, at least for now, um, sort of knocked the wind out of out of any kind of um, effort to to have Maduro removed uh, from power. This is one of the you know the the migrant crisis now that uh, that we're living through. So something like two point three million people have left the country in the last couple of years. That's about seven percent of the population, and I think that's a sign that that people have made a choice. I think whereas before, a lot of a lot of Venezuelans were saying, "Let's you know, let's stay and fight because we can we can beat this and we can get through this." I think the migrant crisis is, is a sign that um, people might be saying, "You know what? It's." Um, let's just let's not like let's we tried and it didn't work um let's get out let's just leave yeah and i you know you can't obviously you can't blame them right i think i think any any change even even something that was true a couple of years ago the possibility of a negotiated transition out of power right i think that's not likely anymore i think you know any election that we have in venezuela going forward on the majoro is going to be rigged um as the previous couple ones have been so the electoral path is out um majoro i don't think is going to suddenly resign i think any any change in leadership at the presidency is going to be either from the military which i i don't see happening uh or the party itself like the psuv if things get really bad might do a, a you know they might change pictures and they might put somebody else in power, but that's still going to be a PSUV uh, president. So it's you know I hate to be gloomy, but it it it's, I think it's a gloomy situation. No, exactly. You know it, it doesn't look very good. Um, one last thing: America must be kind of rubbing their hands together right now. You know there must be they must have a close eye on things. Yeah, there was a report. Um, I forget who published it. It might have been the the Washington Post or. or Anyways, there was a news article that came out relatively recently that that said that um, a U.S. government representative had been invited to participate in talks that were happening in Venezuela about a, a coup. So there was a group of uh, army officers and and maybe I can't remember uh, who were meeting and they were like, okay, let's um, you know we're gonna we're gonna overthrow Maduro. Let's invite the U.S. representative to come. The U.S. Uh, from what I understand. Uh, sent a representative under instructions that they don't promise any help. They were just there to observe, is what the article says. And again, the article mentions that, um, I wish I had it in front of me, but if you look it up, uh, the the U.S. representative, I think, was was surprised that there didn't, there wasn't a plan. Like, the, the, the people who were plotting the coup didn't really have a plan. They were, they had invited the U.S. representative so that they would tell them what to do or that they would, he would pledge support, right? So, um, yeah, you know, the U.S. is, is uh, you know, the U.S. is the U.S., right? I mean, you don't have to look very far in history to see um, that it's interested in, in getting its hands on, um, on all, all sorts of, um, uh, in all sorts of places, right? Uh, under Obama, I don't know, and I, you know, I'm not a huge Obama fan. Um, I would have, you know, when, when people are saying under Obama, oh, the U.S. is about to invade Venezuela, I would say, no, that's not going to happen. Like, Obama, you know, that wouldn't happen. Under Trump, I have no idea. 
what's going to happen. I mean, I, I I would not be shocked if to hear that the U.S. has invaded Venezuela because Trump decided, you know, he woke up that day and he sort of said, okay, let's do it. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, the U.S. always has had an interest in the region. Uh, it's going to continue to have an interest in the region. How that manifests, um, you know, in the Trump presidency, I can't even imagine. Yeah. My granddad was saying, like, the only good thing about Trump is that he's so crackers that he actually puts a lot of these totalitarian dictators on edge. Because if Obama says, like, we'll go in, they're just like, shut up, Obama. But if Trump says it, they're like, this guy might be mad enough to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, Maduro wasn't going to go to the UN General Assembly, um, you know, that was last week or two weeks ago. He, he said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to go. I don't think so. And then Trump said, well, you know, if he comes, I'll probably talk to him, maybe. And Maduro immediately jumped on a plane and, and, and said, OK, I've changed my mind. I'm actually going to go. And, you know, supposedly hoping that he would get a chance to sit down with Trump and work something out. Uh, and then Trump sort of decided that he didn't want to talk to him anyways. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think, you know, I, 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 you know, not to change this into like the Trump podcast. Like he's a horrible human being in every sense of the, of the, of the word. Um, so I, I, I don't want to say that it's good about Trump that he does this. But I think I think he is so you know, unstable that that you can't help but take him seriously in a certain way. Well, yeah, this is, this is the problem with, you know, I'm not going to turn this into politics, but this is the problem with political discourse now. Unfortunately, to even talk about Trump, you have to give this disclaimer of, I don't like, you know, and I don't like him. The thing with the ice situation where the kids being put in fucking concentration camps. However, you know, like we said, on the, on the world stage, it is very different. Um, I guess, uh, I guess, lastly, what, what are your hopes for Venezuela? What do you want to happen, you know, in, in a realistic manner? Um, I think in a realistic manner, yeah. Uh, I, I, if you'd asked me a year ago, I said, you know, let's have an election. Uh, let's have a sort of a free and fair election with lots of international observers from, from um, organizations that, that observe elections. Um, let's have a vote, you know, um, and see, you know, let us choose who we want to lead us. Um, if if an, if a dialogue process you know mediated by the international community could result in that i, I think that would be good uh, if and only if the, the elections were truly free and fair um i think you know maduro needs to go i think the psuv the ruling party needs to go i want that to be peacefully i want them to go peacefully um if Maduro were to say, you know what, I'm done, I'm going to take my all my money and I'm going to go to Cuba and live there the rest of my life, I'd be happy with that um, if it meant that the country could rebuild. The one kind of shining light, I think, is the fact that um, Venezuelan people, I think, generally really love their country and, 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 and they want it to succeed. And, and with so many Venezuelans having left, I want to believe that when the time comes to rebuild the country, a lot of us will help do that. Um, that's what I'd like to see. Okay, well, yeah, me as well. I hope it all works out, man. You know, like I said, it's your country and it's uh, it's a beautiful country from what I've seen. It's a real shame. Yeah, thank you. And where can people get hold of you, mate? Where can they, uh, you know, follow your work, keep in touch with you, ask any questions? Oh, uh, yeah. So I, um, I'm at the Center for Criminology and Social Legal Studies at the University of Toronto. Um, I also run a website. It's um, www.in-venezuela.com. And I have a Twitter account as well where I uh, post... Um, daily updates on the crisis in Venezuela. 
Um, so you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on my website. You can find me on um, in Toronto at the Center for Criminology. Uh, what is the Twitter address as well, so people can you know get hold? It's uh, at in Venezuela blog. Excellent. Okay, mate. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jake. That was Giancarlo Fiorella talking about the crushed rebellion in Venezuela and the rapidly deteriorating situation in the country. As mentioned in the episode, there is a video about Oscar Perez's last hours that I made with Giancarlo and Alium Leroy. You can find that at youtube.com slash popular front. Look for Oscar Perez's last hours. It lays it all out. As usual, this episode was sponsored by thedefensepost.com. That's defense with an S. Uh, I was on the website this morning, actually. There's loads of new stuff on there, so do check them out. And if you want to support Popular Front, if you want to keep this going and in return get bonus episodes, narrated articles, all sorts of other stuff, please do support us on patreon.com slash popularfront. Right now things are growing at a really good pace. Thank you very much to the $30 Patreons. They are Alium Leroy, Axel Iverson, Cedar Fenn, Chad Walker, Cody Bergerud, Dan... Diana Gorvanek, Dan Dunham, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, James, Joanne Stocker, Lawrence Abrams, LH, Margaret Bowling, Peter McCormack, Ryan Sandercock, Stephen Henderson, Teddy and Zachary Hinch. So like I said, if you want to support, go to patreon.com slash popular front. It's much appreciated. And by the way, if I've said any of your names wrong, please get in touch and tell me I'm really bad with names, so apologies. To keep up to date with all things popular front, follow me on Twitter. That's Jake underscore Hanrahan. H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N is how you spell my surname. Or if you can't be bothered with me, follow at Popular Front CO, which is the same as the website. The website is popularfront.co. When the Patreon hits a certain goal, I will be turning that landing page into a full-blown website. There will be articles, videos, all the podcast stuff will be there, a shop, all sorts. It's going to be really good. Follow us on Instagram. We've got loads of stuff going on there. It's instagram.com slash popular.front. And there will be something new coming to the YouTube soon. So go to youtube.com slash popular front. Please do subscribe and hit the bell because like I've said before, YouTube is a terrible platform. It doesn't work properly. So you have to hit the bell to make sure you get updates on the videos. Music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Son of Old. He's got new music on his SoundCloud. So go to soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old. Thank you.